the police can't just go into your neighbourhood and put up cameras uh, that would be surveilling your property or your neighbor's property unless they had a warrant. But because these cameras are sold commercially and civilians willingly install them into their properties and these property and these cameras are often facing other people's properties, this kind of gives law enforcement a backdoor entry into an area that would otherwise be protected by the Fourth Amendment. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everyone. We're here today with Lauren Bridges, who's a PhD candidate at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to be talking all about Amazon Ring. So hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for being with us here Uh today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, So maybe we could start with, you know, a little bit about you. What got you interested in Amazon, Amazon Ring and surveillance assemblages? And then how did that lead you onto a PhD? Um, Well, maybe I should start by defining what I mean by surveillance assemblages, and then I'll backtrack a little bit to explain how I got there. Um, So I'm drawing from two sociologists, Kevin Haggerty and Richard Erickson, who define surveillance assemblages as the convergence of once discrete surveillance systems in ways that increase the degree of surveillance capacity. So they are, of course, drawing from Deleuze and Guattari's theorization of the assemblage, which is comprised of a number of individual entities that enter into relation with one another. Um, So these things or entities can be both physical objects, happenings, events, signs, discourses, infrastructures, environments, people, et cetera. Um, So basically assemblages then are not a single technological object, but a set of relations between things. And I see the surveillance assemblage as as multiple different things from devices to discourses, um, yeah, to environments that are created. But I can't really say that it started with a surveillance assemblages. Um, Rather, this was a path that kept unfolding as I was asking questions about digitization and um, concurrent questions about data and, you know, who was collecting our data, where is it being stored, who has the rights over those da- over that data, um, and who owns the data. And there were, for me, um, two big life events that happened back to back that I would say precipitated in me starting a PhD. 
Um, the first was uh, when I was working in publishing and I was witnessing a mass transformation that was happening in the publishing industry um, where publishing were struggling to adapt to the challenges of digitization. Many processes were being outsourced uh, new, to new tools, of, new tools of digital publishing were changing the way that people were reading books. Um, and there was also a new distributor in town that had radically changed the way that books were being sold and delivered to customers. And of course, that was Amazon. Um, the arrival of Amazon di disrupted the publishing industry. Um, first, well, first of all, they cut out one of the middlemen, uh, distributors and wholesalers, and instead publishers would sell uh, to Amazon, who would then sell on to the customer, whereas previously, Publishers would sell to um, wholesalers who would then sell to book, booksellers who would then sell to the customer. And Amazon were forcing these uh, deep discounts from publishers. And many just couldn't keep up. They couldn't survive. So uh, during that time, there was a big dropping out of the middle of the market where uh, a number of mid-sized publishers got bought up by larger publishers and you were left with just large publishers and really niche small publishers. Um, then the second life event that happened is after uh, the publishing business that I was working for was bought by Taylor and Francis. Um, I had a, a brief time between starting my PhD where I worked in Australian manufacturing. And there I witnessed also a, a really big transformation that was happening. Basically, um, the in Australia, uh, my home country, I was working as a grant uh, writer for manufacturing. And they're investing heavily in what they call the fourth industrial revolution. Um, so that's also known as the smart revolution or 4IR. I'm not sure if you've heard this term before, but basically the idea is that we're ushering in a new industrial revolution defined by the convergence of a number of intelligent technologies, including artificial intelligence, robotics, sensing technologies, big data analytics, all of, all of the tech of the future. Um, and this is largely made possible due to changes in computing infrastructure, namely the cloud. Um, so on the one hand, on publishing, I was witnessing all of these changes and disruptions happening in the publishing industry and publishing software and and labor processes. And then in manufacturing, I was also seeing this kind of gold rush towards smart technologies um, and predominantly uh, driven a lot by changes in computing. Um, so this is a, a long way around of saying what, what led me to this path was actually uh, my interest in the in underlying infrastructure, um, the underlying changes to computing, um, the move to cloud computing, and just asking a lot of questions about like, what does this mean? What does, what is the cloud? Where is the cloud? Um, and I guess, I guess, I guess you could say I got into surveillance assemblages through the path of infrastructure. Yeah, that's so fascinating to, to see two industries that were really disrupted, as you said, by Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess then, you know, for the, first of all, you know, for the uninitiated amongst our listeners, like what exactly is an Amazon Ring and how does Amazon Ring differ from any old security camera in terms of, you know, how it's relating to this surveillance assemblage to the, you know, infrastructure mm -hmm. that you, you were talking about? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I guess we should probably also start with the fact that Ring is a wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. So institutionally, it, it's, a, it's a company. It sells uh, surveillance devices such as its signature Ring video doorbell. Um, the Amazon Ring surveillance assemblage, as I, as I was just explaining, is comprised of multiple different physical surveillance product, products like doorbells, alarms, sensors, speakers, floodlights. Um, it's also a social media crime reporting platform called Neighbors. Um, they also have partnerships with law enforcement, which I'm sure we'll get more into. Uh, marketing, you know, of discourses of fear and security. Um, and of course, it's all connected and stored on the cloud. Um, but it's also, uh, they, they also have convergence and compatibility with Amazon's technology, other technologies such as its Alexa program. So uh, Ring integrate with, um, yeah, with other smart technologies in, in the home. For me, the difference uh, between previous forms of um, security cameras uh, that were CCTV, so that these are closed loop security cameras that have been around since the 1970s um, and 1980s, um, is, is the fact that it is all connected through the internet and stored in the cloud. Um, so it's precisely the networked effect of the IP cameras or internet protocol cameras that are connected through the internet and stored and processed in the cloud that make it this turning point in the history of surveillance. The cloud connected nature of ring cameras um, allow for a different set of affordances uh, than the closed loop system. So it allows them to be centrally uh, stored and also centrally queried, where um, importantly, you can add things like artificial intelligence, um, facial recognition technology, any kind of predictive analytics or machine learning to make sense of this mass amount of data uh, can then be applied really easily because it's all centrally located. Because, yeah, I didn't, when you said that, it makes sense that the CCTV can't add facial recognition to it in addition to not being able to be requested by a central corporation or state. Right. And I'm, so there are ways to um, make CCTV uh, or, or to centralize it and, you know, broadcast it over the internet. CCTV usually is stored locally, so on a hard drive or on the device itself. Um, with the ring cameras, you, they can store them locally. Uh, they, you can store content locally, um, back it up to a local hard drive or on the camera, I believe itself, maybe. Um, but it is all being backed up to the cloud and it's all being stored on Amazon web servers. Uh, whereas with CCTV, um, it will only be uh, certain systems that will be centralized. So say you have a, a city and, you know, the local government um, puts lots of cameras out on, on light poles, they might be using a CCTV system where it's a closed loose loop system and all of those feeds are coming back into, into one area, into like one centralized location. And, you know, they of course can apply analytics to that. Um, but that, that, is, that is a different scale than the Ring network. The Ring network uh, connects uh, cameras, essentially it has the power to connect cameras all over the world. 
um, that could be centrally queried. Um, although usually it will, uh, for, for the partnerships with law enforcement, usually they'll be most, mostly focused on a certain area, but it does make it a really powerful network. This is why I call it the largest civilian surveillance network in the United States, but I would quickly, uh, I think I might need to quickly amend that to, to the world. Wow. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the headlines like that I see about Amazon Ring that come up in the past couple of years have been its relationship to law enforcement. Um, so I wonder, like, what exactly is that relationship between, you know, Amazon and Amazon Ring and it's and what it's storing and, you know, what each customer has access to and law enforcement? What does it really entail? Who has access to this footage? How does law enforcement get access to this footage? And, you know, what do they in general use it for yeah okay so we'll try to unpack it a number of those questions and see how i go um so amazon when they acquired ring in 2018 they also acquired the neighbors platform um so neighbors is uh, a social media platform it's an app anyone can join neighbors you don't need to have a ring product to join neighbors um, and basically users post about um, suspected crime or any kind of um, social concern that's happening. Maybe you hear an explosion or um, gunshots or whatever, uh, and then you post on the neighbor's app. And you can only post within a five-mile radius of your home. Um, but pretty quickly after Amazon purchased Ring and the affiliated neighbor's app, they started the partnerships with law enforcement. Um, so now they have over 2,000 partnerships with local police and fire, fire departments, uh, which equates to approximately one in 10 police departments across the United States. Um, so this means that law enforcement, um, so how it works is they can place requests to users to access their content uh, that they capture on a ring device. Uh, and the way that they make these requests is they go onto the neighbor's app, the neighbor's platform, and they, they place a public request. So basically law enforcement go onto the neighbor's app and they can place requests to users to access their content. Uh, and none of these requests require a warrant. Um, all, of, all they require is all they need to do is to meet Amazon's internal company guidelines for video requests. So in a, in a sense, these are warrantless requests. They're warrantless. They could be equated to a warrantless search. Um, whereas a warrant for, for law enforcement to get a warrant, there must be probable cause and they're very limited in scope. Um, but these warrantless requests, they, they don't have to meet as uh, stringent uh, a, a kind of standard for them to um, make these requests. Um, of course, if they do receive a warrant, if law enforcement, you know, are investigating a crime that's happened and they go and get a warrant and they go through the regular process, um, they can go directly to Ring. They don't have to go to the user uh, and they can request that that content legally and Ring will release it. So that, that's also another way to get around uh, user consent in a way. 
Um, although the user would have to give up, you know, legally would have to give up that, um, that content. Um, so I see this as an extension of law enforcement in a way. So uh, whereas with the Fourth Amendment, um, the police can't just go into your neighborhood and put up cameras uh, that would be surveilling your property or your neighbor's property, unless they had a warrant. Um, but without a warrant, they can't just show up to your neighborhood and just start surveilling everyone, um, you know, loosey-goosey surveillance. Um, no, uh, because that, that would be prohibited under the Fourth Amendment as uh, being, um, you know, a violation of, of your civil rights. But because these cameras are sold commercially and civilians willingly install them into their properties and these property and these cameras are often facing other people's properties this kind of gives law enforcement a backdoor entry into an area that would otherwise be protected by the fourth amendment uh, so this is this for me is is the core issue with the program with law enforcement the fact that because these cameras are sold commercially it allows them to circumnavigate uh, otherwise legal protections, um, stopping uh, law enforcement from over surveilling um, certain people that might end up being very harmful. I wonder then what what is Amazon? You know, so like obviously Amazon has done a lot, and there's been a lot of news news articles in terms of how it's um, pushing these partnerships with police or promoting them, I should say. Um, and obviously, right, like there's a clear benefit to like why Amazon wants to sell ring cameras. Like it's a commercial product. They make money from it. But what exactly is does Amazon get out of promoting partnerships with the police? I think that's a really interesting question that uh, doesn't have a very straightforward answer. Um, I would love to ask Ring, why do you want these partnerships with law enforcement? Um, I think, I mean, I think part of it is is a commercial drive. So part of it is a maybe a commercial interest in Amazon. Obviously, we want to protect one of their greatest assets, which is selling people selling people things that show up on their doorstop. But they've had an increasing problem around the United States, anyway. Um, of issues of people's packages being stolen, what they call, what we call uh, porch pirates, people coming along and stealing your packages. So in the first instance, Amazon wants to prevent this like problem from getting out of hand so that they can continue to sell people products. And I think that um, the ring surveillance cameras are a great way for them to mitigate these risks. And connecting those cameras to law enforcement um, is an even greater deterrent for any porch pirate coming along because not only is that camera connected to the internet and being uh, recorded, but <clears throat> that that recording can easily be released to law enforcement. So first of all, I do think it could be a crime deterrent for petty crime stealing packages, um, but I I do think there there is a maybe more sinister take on this in that. Um, so early on in the program, Amazon Ring were giving away cameras to uh, local police departments and they were encouraging them to 
hand them out to civilians. Um, so they're obviously not, you know, they're not as concerned about making money out of selling the, uh, the cameras. They want to increase the size of the network. And once you have a lot of cameras in operation, obviously the network is more valuable, it's more interesting, it has more interesting data insights, uh, you know, the power of numbers. And so another um, potential interest in, uh, in their affiliation with law enforcement, I see, is selling other services to law enforcement. Um, so they, we can get into facial recognition technology. They, they don't sell facial recognition technology to law enforcement, but they do sell many, many other um, uh, software, I guess, at the software level of infrastructure um, they sell many other programs or products to government entities and to law enforcement that could help them make sense of the data. So, you know, um, machine learning, analytics, um, any kind of programs that would help them make sense of it. So I do think that that could be one of their primary uh, commercial interests in, in building out this network. And also, uh, pairing that with their Alexa program. Yeah, so um, yeah, adding the artificial intelligence, the, the home assistant um, uh, devices in with the security devices, it all just becomes this, you know, really big surveillance system inside your home. So it's like part of Amazon's project to like connect all of the devices in your home to be able to sell more products yes, <laughs> based on yeah. the fact that they've connected all the devices in your home. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that all of those data insights, all of those data points are going to be very valuable to Amazon and very valuable to their marketing team um, to build more nuanced uh, user profiles. Um, not only do they see what you buy when you go on, you know, an Amazon website or when you go to Whole Foods, um, or not only do they see what you watch on your Amazon Prime account, but now they can see when you're coming and going from your home and when you're turning on your lights or locking your door or like just um, just so much information on on users all being connected together. And I'm not saying that they're, they're, they would use that information to spy on individual people. I don't think they're so much interested in spying on folks, but I do think they're interested in selling to people. And I do think that more nuanced and more detailed user profiles is, means more valuable marketing insights. And you start to see it in um, their financial statements where their uh, advertising dollars are now going through the roof. Like their advertising dollars are now making up um, a, an essential part of Amazon's operating profit. Um, and it's been increasing rapidly over the last few years. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when their but, uh, earnings or whatever came out and they finally admitted how much they're making in digital advertising. Yeah, they're becoming one of, you know, they're, they're starting to take on um, Facebook and Google. It no longer will be this advertising duopoly. Like, watch out, Amazon is going to be uh, a force to reckon with in terms of advertising dollars. Then I wonder, so when, you know, one of the interesting things we talked about on the last Amazon um, podcast was like, when you download your data, you see what they're using your data for. So obviously like 
with the Amazon Alexa voice commands, right? They're recording you. So he said, you know, there's these rare instances in which like rogue employees do spy on potential love interests or whatever. But most of what they're really using that data for is training the AI. So I wonder then with the um, the cameras in terms of like, I think, you know, it's obvious like that Amazon has this footage, but then did they themselves analyze that footage for their own internal purposes, as well as sharing it with, with law enforcement for like crime prevention purposes? Yeah. Uh, so there was a program early on when Amazon purchased Ring um, where they were, they, they were working with a company or there was an arm of Ring um, that was working on machine learning. So to make the cameras um, become more powerful and more useful, and also because the cameras are sensor activated as well. Um, and that program was being developed in the Ukraine. And then I think some um, uh, investigative journalism uncovered um, that this aff affiliation was, and this program was being developed in the Ukraine. <clears throat> and they were relying on... Um, footage captured on ring cameras that users were not aware of were being sent to U Ukraine uh, to be tagged for machine learning purposes. So basically, if you had a ring camera and it was, it was operating, um, your content, the content from your camera capturing your family and your neighbors and the mailman and anyone going about their, their business um, was then being coded by, uh, you know, by a hidden network of, of precarious workers, um, yeah, to, to tag it for machine learning purposes. Now, that program in Ukraine got shut down, I think, after, you know, after reports came out and people were outraged and upset about it. Um, but it does not stop another program like that being developed. And I would say almost certainly all of this content is very valuable for machine learning purposes. We know that artificial intelligence is, um, and the building and development of artificial intelligence uh, is very valuable. It's very valuable to these tech companies. It's incredibly valuable to, uh, to law enforcement. Um, and that it relies on a lot of data. And where do you get that data? Where do you get that footage from? And now they have access to, to like hundreds of millions of cameras. Um, and there is no law preventing them from using that footage to train uh, models. So I, I wouldn't see why they wouldn't be using it. Obviously, the history of, to go back to like policing, the history of policing in the U.S. is based on the sort of policing of race um, and ring really seems to play into that. So like in your research, one of the anecdotes or, or evidence you were you were giving for this is and I hadn't I hadn't seen this before about the um, the uh, uh, advertisement for ring in which it's like a white suburban neighborhood and then like a black man appears who's like a potential criminal trying to steal a package. So it's like very clearly playing into this like racialized notion of crime that like Amazon ring is gonna help prevent. Um, so I wonder then like how in your research, like how does ring and these like at home connected surveillance networks play into this like racialized conceptions of like policing and quote unquote security. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, so here I'm going to refer to um, another a sociologist, um, Rahim Kurwa, because I think he comes up with this concept that is just really uh, salient and applicable in, in answering this question. He was analyzing uh, Nextdoor, which is kind of like the neighbor's app. It, you know, it's a community social media program. Um, and he, he published an article, I believe, in Surveillance and Society um, called The Digital Gated Community. And basically, he argues that these kinds of platforms are building these digital gated communities that uh, really rely on and, and reinforce a very long history of the policing of race in residential space. Uh, where anyone that is considered to be outside or, uh, or you know, that they are out of place in those suburban neighbourhoods, they're then tagged, um, they're surveilled, and the community, um, you know, uh, post, uh, they capture them on their cameras and they post about it, um, and they question why they're in that space. And this, I mean, this this taps into a much longer history in the United States of, um, you know, of that might harken back to like the Jim Crow era and white policing councils. But for me, there is a really big crucial difference between these earlier forms of policing of race in residential space and uh, and the networked forms. And that is, for me, obviously going to be in the infrastructure and in the computing and the fact that uh, you know, previously these were distributed um, uh, groups uh, and they could be coordinated for sure, but now these are centralized mass scale um, community surveillance networks. Um, yeah, and I think that I think that ring are very careful not to um, overtly use racist images. Uh, I mean, I think that they are concerned that they might, be you know that they might be considered to be adding to these these concerns or these these problems um but instead it's all very coded so you'll often see like neighborhoods big neighborhoods sprawling you know front yards and um and they're constructing this uh vision of middle of uh of the middle class or middle to upper class that is coded um, it, it's actually, I'm, I mean, I guess it's its not covertly coded as white America, but it plays on a long history of white American fears of black crime. And, um, and they don't overtly come out with saying those things, but I think it's, um, it's present in the marketing messages. Um, so I, along with Rahim Kowar and, and many other folks, you know, see this as part of a long history of uh, racialized policing of people in residential space. I'll also add another anecdote. Um, on the neighbor's platform, when you post, uh, you can choose a tag for what, um, what the content is about. It could be, I think there's a tag now, lost pet, um, or it could be, there's a safety tag, um, or it could be like, um, a shooting or something like that. Uh, and initially there was a tag called suspicious, but Ring had to take down that tag because they were finding that more often than not, 
this tag was being commonly attributed to people of color just going about their lives. And so uh, very quietly, they just took away that tag. <laughs> Seems like it's just like embed, it's embedding itself in like already existing community like structures within yeah. kind of like the historical systems of oppression. Yeah, embedding itself in pre-existing, um, you know, redlining and profiling and segregation. Uh, but I would say to some extent also exacerbating it. Would you say there was an interesting article, I think it was in Wired, that was like a black woman invented at home surveillance cameras. Where did it go so wrong? Um, oh, yeah. Have you, have you seen? I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that was and yeah, it was like an interesting article about how like we think of like surveillance as making us safer and and then how it obviously gets co-opted by like systems of power um so do you think that like people who you know on an individual level do you think that installing a ring camera makes you safer or is there any evidence that it does you know deter crime or break-ins or package thefts so we only currently have anecdotal evidence that you know installing a ring camera makes you safer Obviously, um, surveillance systems uh, are known to deter crime. Uh, so we can't, maybe we won't know for sure what, what crime did or didn't happen because a camera was installed and it acted as a deterrent. And I, you know, I understand and, and think that, and think that everyone has a right to protect their home and to feel safe in their home. Um, so the issue for me is not so much about, you know, the installation of a camera that might be a useful deterrent against crime. Um, but the, the deep concern for me is what happens with that data. Where is it going? Who's it being used by? Who gets access to it? Um, so while, while we don't really know for sure, um, if it makes you safer, um, yeah, what we what we do know is that there have been a number of instances of uh, of hacking. Um, we we know that um, law enforcement have used these cameras to surveil protesters during the Black Lives Matter um, in 2020. Um, uh, yeah, that we also know that these cameras have a mass potential for abuse. So while they may not make you safer, they, they certainly could make vulnerable populations and marginalized people, particularly people of color and, and people in lower income areas uh, may be disproportionately targeted by these forms of surveillance. Safer for some, maybe not for others. It seems something like a ring a remote camera like ring seems like it would be very clearly used in like things like domestic violence as well like it's oh yeah there is uh yeah there's a lot of concern from the domestic violence community um or advocates against domestic violence uh yeah and there have been instances where these kinds of devices have been used in domestic violence and you can see how you know uh the the coordination of multiple different surveillance products. Um, you could essentially surveil every part of your home inside and out. Uh, and 
and th that also raises this other issue of consent, actually. Um, yeah, so consent lies in the hands of the ring owner, the ring camera owner. Um, and they, they basically control the account, which is, you know, that could be a really big problem in domestic violence. Um, for me, there are, there are two layers to the, the issue of consent with um, the ring cameras. So the first one being that it's up to the owner. Um, the, the owner basically controls the rights over the camera. Um, and if you are then deciding whether or not to release that content to law enforcement, they are the ones that have the final say over that. So in the case where they don't have a warrant, um, where law enforcement come to you and they ask for your, for your footage, you get to decide. But anyone else that is captured on that camera doesn't have to agree to that. So your, you know, your neighbor or your partner or any, anyone that has been recorded on that camera they don't have to provide consent, just the ring camera owner. Um, so basically, if your neighbor installs one of these cameras and uh, and then they consent to releasing that, that video to law enforcement, you know, you yourself or your family or your loved ones could be could be um, captured in, in those recordings. The second issue of consent is that it, at the moment it is unlimited and irreversible. In that, I mean... Once you have provided consent to law enforcement to access the recordings, um, they, they can uh, keep that content for as long as they want. They can share it with any other kind of law enforcement agency like immigration, um, and you can't take it back. You can't, you can't ask for that content back. Um, and this, this is also a really big concern in Jackson, Mississippi, where they have uh, they've initiated they, they ran a pilot program and now it's um, it's a full program where um, the Jackson, Mississippi uh, um, Police Department have partnered with some local technology companies to get access to the live feeds of people's ring cameras. And uh, basically they went to the ring owners and asked them for consent to access their live feeds. And it was, it's like a one-time deal. You know, you go to the camera owner, they say, yeah, sure, we'll be a part of this program. And now their live feeds are all going into a, a real-time crime center, um, which has like cameras from all over the city, you know, that are installed by the government in public spaces where it's where it's legal to do so. But now it also has all of this extra footage, all this residential footage. Um, yeah, which again, you know, only the ring owner needs to consent to to that kind of footage. And you can just imagine how powerful that kind of surveillance system or surveillance network is. Yeah, that's crazy that you can't un you know revoke permission that you can see how somebody like clicks through once without thinking about it and then all of a sudden like their footage was being shared with that you know this law enforcement which shared with that agency which boom boom you know yeah and I should also say I mean I don't know about the Jackson Mississippi program if you can take yourself off of it afterwards but uh, the way that it's set up it's just like you provide consent and then it happens um 
I'm sure if you wanted to get off that program, you probably could find a way to do it, but it's much harder to revoke consent than it is to give it. Yeah, yeah, probably by design. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah, I guess one of the things, you, you, you know, you mentioned before, but um, is about like facial recognition and other other things that you can use this this data and this footage for. Um, there's a recent story in the past week, you know, about um, the IRS trying to integrate a facial recognition system into, you know, filing taxes. And there's a really incredible um, kind of collective movement that organized to to, you know, protest and petition against this. So they, I think they did end up a couple of days ago uh, as we're recording, uh, the IRS ended up um, canceling those plans, which is fantastic. But, you know, it brought up uh, a lot of other concerns around like a private company being contracted by the government to use facial recognition technology to verify the identity of like individuals in order to access government services. Very worrying. Um, so wonder, you know, you mentioned this before, but like, is Ring planning on using facial recognition technology and how would that kind of fit in to the other like surveillance or like government services that they provide? Yeah. Um, wow. That's a deeply disconcerting story. Um, but I'm glad to hear that they've, re- they've changed their, their minds on that. Um, so Amazon um do not sell facial recognition technology to law enforcement. Following pressure um, from civil rights groups, uh, especially during Black Lives Matter protests, um, a lot of the big tech companies uh, put out statements saying, you know, we're going to put a moratorium on selling facial recognition technology to law enforcement. We'll still develop it. We'll still have it. Uh, We'll sell it to anyone else. We won't sell it to law enforcement because it, it makes us look bad. So uh, Amazon um, put a moratorium on selling facial recognition technology. Amazon don't sell facial recognition. And and Ring at this stage uh, don't have facial recognition technology applied to their cameras or they don't sell it as a service or product to customers. But they do have a patent for facial recognition technology. And they are, I'm sure, developing the capabilities. And, you know, Google Nest, they use facial recognition technology um, to recognize, you know, people coming to your front door. Uh, And I think Ring have have said publicly that if customers demand it, they will, you know, they will start selling that technology or they'll start selling cameras that have facial recognition capability in them. But even though, I think what's really important to underscore is even though Amazon don't sell facial recognition technology currently, um, or or they've they've extended the moratorium indefinitely, it doesn't stop law enforcement from buying it elsewhere. So we know that Clearview AI uh, sell facial recognition technology to law enforcement. There are plenty of other companies that sell this technology, and it's very easy for them to buy that that technology and apply it to ring products it doesn't mean that it's not being used on ring footage it just means that amazon aren't the one selling it to them so so it could facial recognition could come in in future it could and it's most likely already being used it's just not being sold by amazon then one of the issues you know this around security that comes up this is right obviously like harms that are like 
can occur based on like the assumption that all of the data is being used like properly and within the bounds of the law. Um, there's a huge amount of data, like this surveillance footage that's being stored in the cloud. So, you know, one, right, where is this ring footage being stored and has it ever been hacked? Um, yeah, that's, that's, and do we thing. know if it has been? <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know, would we? We don't know a lot of the cases, but we do know that, yes, hacking is a problem. So based on the, the fact that these uh, cameras are connected through the internet, the IP nature of the cameras, it makes them vulnerable to hacking. And it's, it, it doesn't make them vulnerable to hacking just, you know, in the storage aspect, but actually in the internet connected nature of them. So anytime you have a product that is being, that data is uh, being distributed over the internet, it is it is vulnerable to hacking. Um, and there have been a number of high profile cases for the ring cameras, um, instances of hacking. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit um, for a group of people that are that were concerned about hacking and um, yeah, put a lawsuit together um, against Ring for their lax security measures. In one particularly harrowing case, I'm not sure if you read about this, I think it was in the Washington Post, an eight-year-old girl was harassed in her bedroom. Um, a man is heard over the Ring camera that is facing her bedroom, uh, calling himself Santa Claus, and he tells her that she can do whatever she wants. And then he starts using racial slurs and starts uh, yelling abuse at her. Yeah, it's a terrifying instance of hacking. I've also seen an elderly lady get harassed by someone over uh, the ring camera. So mostly what makes them vulnerable um, to hacking is the fact that they're connected by the internet. And I think they are trying to, uh, you know, create more uh, measures to increase the security, but any, any kind of device that, that um, is connected to the internet will be vulnerable to that. And then in terms of where the data is stored, um, I don't know of any instances of the storage aspect being hacked in particular, um, but all of, this, all of the data is being stored on Amazon Web Services servers. So it's all being stored, backed up and stored on the Amazon cloud. It seems like the hacking so far that we know isn't necessarily that other people are taking your footage, but that they're taking over your device. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard of any cases of them of people uh, recording and taking the footage, but I've definitely read a lot of cases of hacking uh, where people somehow get access to the camera and then they harass um, uh, the people that own the cameras mm -hmm. yeah because you're right because you can talk you can talk out of the you ring isn't it? Yeah. oh yeah yeah they usually let their presence be known by um yeah by harassing people that's, yeah that's why and i've seen creepy things like uh, you know people like cooking dinner and they won't even realize and they've got a camera they've got you know a ring camera facing them and then someone will say like, oh, can you pass the salt or, you know, like they'll just say creepy weird things, which is just so terrifying. Yeah. George Orwell is just like, it was not an instruction manual. Yeah. Oh, and there's a, there's a product that I don't think is out yet, which is the indoor drone camera. I don't right, know. right, 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 right. So and soon probably get what to... you want, a moving camera. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can have it fly around your house. You can imagine, like, that's just, yeah, that that's going to be terrifying when hackers work out how to get into the yeah. drone cameras that are in your home. That's wild, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, Ugh, getting chills. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing is then I wondered, I don't know if you, you know, but, you know, that's a, it seems like there's, you know, large amount of data that's being stored. It sounds like there's probably a big environmental impact associated with like storing all this footage. Oh yeah, absolutely. And there's been some really excellent work in this area that looks at the environmental impacts. Um, My, my, my dissertation is trying to grapple with some of these questions and um, yeah, where (laughs) any, anytime you have a, device that's connected to the internet, it's stored and um, backed up in the cloud, which is essentially just, you know, big data centers. They're big concrete buildings full of servers. um, And these are mostly being placed in rural areas and kind of like in um, areas where land is cheap. Uh, They have huge energy demands. They require millions and millions and millions of gallons of water to cool the servers and keep them keep them cool to keep the computers running. Um, they also generate a lot of waste, electronic waste, which is toxic and uh, also deeply concerning. So the environmental impacts of these things aren't, um, aren't usually felt at the site of the device itself. I mean, the device, uh, it it also becomes waste at some point and it will go somewhere into landfill. <clears throat> but um, really the environmental impact is happening in the mass computing uh, area. So where where all the data is being backed up and stored has huge environmental impacts, yeah. Okay, then my last two questions. So the first is what would you say to somebody who's considering buying an Amazon ring? I would say consider your other options. Um, Previously, I have said, you know, I think it's okay if you buy uh, one of these products and just be aware of to whom and what you are connecting, especially with law enforcement. But honestly, I, I think there is too much risk and there is too much power that's being consolidated in the hands of a private company with very little oversight. So I would say, think if you want to get home security, go back to CCTV. There are some great CCTV (laughs) uh, products out there and you get to control your data. You get to have, uh, you you can have all of the footage stored on a local hard drive. Um, Obviously, if the police come knocking and they want access to um, to your content, uh, they have to have a warrant. And if they have a warrant, you know, then great, like excellent. There's a legal process and there are protections there for a reason. But I, I think that the risk is just too great. You you have no real control over anything that's captured on these devices. And, you know, these are, this is your home. This is your, your family life. Um, we might all joke about how we've lost any form of privacy and that we carry around, you know, little surveillance devices in our product, in our pockets, our phones being the biggest surveillance device. But I want to push back on that. I really do. 
uh, we do not currently have cameras operating all in our in our home space and you know voice assistance this is this is a new form of surveillance that I really think that we should um, try to protect and and resist especially when it's a big corporate entity okay and then for our last question so if you could give one piece of advice or recommendation to any entity be it Amazon, be it, uh, you know, law enforcement, be it the U.S. government, you know, what what have you, any entity or individuals, right, um, communi- local community and safety organizations, what would that advice be? Well, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> uh, um, so my advice to uh, community members um, would be to get involved in uh, policing oversight committees. They, there are many of these popping up around, um, around the country. And their main role is to work with law enforcement and to talk with them about the kinds of technologies that are being used to surveil communities. So I would say if you're concerned about these things, um, try to find out if there is a police oversight committee. Usually it's open for people to, to join and, you know, just any citizen or res- resident to, to join the meetings. They're usually open in public forums. So get involved. Um, for law enforcement, um, I would say that there needs to be a, an audit and review on how this content is being used and what kinds of standard uh, of proof and evidence are being used, and I think that there just there really needs to be more accountability for um, what happens to to this content that's being released, especially the content that's being released without a warrant. And to Amazon, I would just say stop. Um, you know, I don't have an issue with like a company trying to sell things, but like the the the, the scale, the scale, and the scale of the harm is just staggering 